let's be honest, the business side of being an artist <laughs> does suck. It's, it's not what you signed up for. It's not the reason you became an artist, but I'll tell you what, it's the reason you'll stay an artist. It's yeah. the reason you can still be an artist is because you had to figure out how to do that. And it takes a while. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Today's episode is the second part of my conversation with Jason Chatfield, a cartoonist and comedian in New York. If you haven't heard part one, I suggest heading back to episode 67 and giving it a listen. Or maybe listen to this first and then go to that. I don't know. I don't want to tell you what to do. I'm just glad you're here. Big thanks to everyone who listens to this show and also to everyone that supports my work. Without you, I would not be able to continue doing this. Jason and I talk about a lot of the things that go into starting, building and sustaining an independent career. Whether you are an artist, a writer, a cartoonist, a comedian or as in Jason's case, all of the above. Both Jason and I started putting things online, pre-social media, and it was a very different world. The idea of getting paid to put writings and drawings on the internet was unimaginable. Over the last couple of decades, it feels like everything has changed completely every year. The world of comics, for example, who reads them and where, has changed again and again. The idea of comedy, how it is consumed, what it means to make a joke, that has changed. The idea of art itself in our age of virtual reproduction, how it lives in people's minds and lives, how we own it, how we share it physically or digitally. Over the last couple of decades, in so many ways, a lot of traditional gatekeepers are gone. And if not actually gone, every year they become more irrelevant. From what looked like a zero-sum environment, we can begin to imagine a positive-sum world one in which we are not in constant competition with others. In 2023, the work of being an artist is all mixed up with the business of being an artist. This is both great and terrible, but mostly it is good. There has been no better time in human history to be an artist and to dream of succeeding as an artist. We talk about the importance of taking charge of your own career, especially for the less savory things like promoting yourself like a brand, talking about your work like a brand, and even thinking about yourself like a brand. Ugh. If you are in the same boat as Jason, as me, as us, if you are maybe somewhere else on these same seas, battling similar waves, this conversation should help you find your way. With this episode, I'm doing something new instead of show notes. It's a kind of map I make when I'm connecting different ideas in my mind, when I'm processing a lot of information. Find the link in the episode description to see it. Hang around until the end when I explain to Jason the differences between possums and opossums. We discover that when you play possum, you're actually playing opossum, unless you're in Australia where everything is upside down. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Happy listening. 
a little bit about um, just this path to becoming a cartoonist. Like at 23, you're taking over Ginger Megs, which is such a massive responsibility. And I'm so curious about what you did in the lead up to this that got you this job. So tell me about uh, growing up in Perth and the kind of comics and the kind of influences that pushed you towards expressing yourself in this manner. Well, much like you in Calcutta, I had the daily newspaper with comic strips and I had many of the same ones. I had the Phantom, I had Calvin and Hobbes, um, you know, I had Garfield, but, uh, but I had Ginger Megs and Ginger Megs at the time was one of only two, uh, comic strips that I would see because it's a one newspaper town still is the West Australian is the paper and then it still runs Ginger Megs, thankfully. Um, but Ginger Megs was the only Aussie comic strip that I'd seen that I was like, oh, we can do this. Is this a thing we can do? Is this a job? Um, but then it, it seemed so insurmountable to, to get to that point that I was like, what else could I do? And I looked at the uh, editorial page and the editorial cartoonist, Dean Alston did a daily cartoon in the editorial section. And then in the inside cover, he'd do like a pocket cartoon mm-hmm. about one of the topics in the inside cover, which are like letters to the editor kind of thing. Um, and so I went to him as soon as I graduated high school, literally the day after I graduated high school, um, because I had done work experience when I was 15 at that newspaper as a graphic designer. And I said to him, how do I get to where you are now? Like, what did you do to become a cartoonist? Um, because there doesn't seem to be any university degrees. There are no courses. There are no, there is no clear path. There is no, not, it's not like when you become a, a teacher or a lawyer or something where there's like a path, there's a upward mobility, there's a, a defined path to how to do things. And he said, you know, there, he said, the best advice I could give you is just to keep doing it. Just do it every day. Never stop doing it. Make it become such a habit that you can't not do it. And, um, you know, he gave me some other sort of professional advice and things like that, but mainly that was the thing that stuck with me was like, all right, just keep, keep going. And the best thing that I ever did, and I would encourage every artist of any kind to do this because it, of, of all of the things I tried and believe me, I tried a lot of things. Um, uh, you know, I was doing live caricatures at events. I was doing you know, caricature commissions for people. I was doing logos and drawing, um, you know, uh, gag cartoons and I was trying to do animation and I was was just trying to do everything just to pay the rent, just to do something. Um, and at the time I was working as a printer, like a print, you know, in a print house for years. And that was my job at a high school where I was working as a printer and then honing my craft as a cartoonist at night until like 3am and then getting up at 6am and doing it all again. It was very unsustainable life. Um, but the one thing coming back to the one thing that really, really moved the needle for me was finding other cartoonists in an organization of cartoonists. Mm -hmm. So what happened was one day I was working at the print shop and a guy came in wanting some photocopies. And when I took the photocopies from him, I noticed they were cartoons, they were editorial cartoons. And I recognized the style because it was the local newspaper. Um, it was the only other cartooning job in Perth. If you didn't do the main newspaper, there was like this local newspaper, tiny little local newspaper chain called Community News. And there was a cartoonist in that thing, but I assumed he was a hobbyist. I never assumed that was his job. 
I always thought, oh, he's just doing them on the side or whatever. Turns mm-hmm. out it was his full-time job. He did do that full-time. And he did it for all the community newspapers. And uh, I asked him when I made the copies, I brought them back and I said, hey, um, I'm something of a cartoonist myself. And he goes, oh, really? Where are you published? And I was like, oh, okay, forget it. <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. I was just, I was just wondering if you were in uh, anything that I could see your work. And I showed him, I had a website, a pretty, you know, it was early 2000s, so it was pretty rough, but it was a website. GeoCities. Flash. I was using Flash. <laughs> um, and uh, RIP Flash. Um, so I, I, I showed him some of my work and he said, you know, you should join the Australian Cartoonist Association because it's just a bunch of cartoonists and there's a West Australian chapter, a Victorian chapter, a New South Wales chapter, Queensland chapter. Um, we all kind of come together and hang out. We do exhibitions, we do workshops, we, you know, we go on, you know, trips. And then there's like an annual awards night and conference that we do every year out, you know, in the Eastern States. Um, you know, you should come by. So I was like, oh my God, there are others like us. What are you, what are you insane? Uh, I thought I was all alone. I joined the West Australian chapter of the, uh, the ACA and talk to other cartoonists and I learned so much talking to like book illustrators and gag cartoonists and comic strip artists and caricaturists um and more than I could ever learn reading books or doing a course or any any art things all my friends were in college they're all in university um and I was just this floating freelance whatever (laughs) working at a print shop trying to make a, a living as a cartoonist and um they were so generous. They, there was no animosity or competitiveness. It was just like everyone was really passionate about it. Everyone wanted to share their sort of insights and their tricks of the trade and bits of business and skills. And over time, I sort of got more involved with them. So I became the sort of chapter vice president of the WA chapter. And then I moved up and became the president of the whole organization uh, when I was like 20, 26, I guess. Um, and then... I just became sort of this, like, uh, I guess, like a bottomless pit of, of like a vortex of, I wanted all the information I could about the thing that I love the most. Uh-huh. And there is so much experience to draw from talking to other people who do the thing you want to do. Oh yeah. And, um, I've, I've found that so useful. It is the thing that pulled me out of Perth towards Melbourne and built my career um, to the point where I could say, when someone asked me, like you were saying earlier, when someone says, what do you do? And you say, I'm an artist or I'm a cartoonist. You can say it without a smirk on your face. You can say it <laughs> because you are, it's true. Yeah. And um, it's a, and the reaction is always interesting, by the way. When you say I'm a cartoonist, they're like, what? That's a job? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and then eventually when I moved to the United States, I had built a network of people by coming to the US mm-hmm. um, every year for their conference, their version of the, what we had in Australia. It was called the Stanleys. Here it's called the Rubens, uh, named after Rube Goldberg. Um, the National Cartoonist Society here, they also um, had this huge, just like an order of magnitude bigger than the ACA. Uh, a bunch of cartoonists that were really generous and helpful and um, really interesting people that could share very very specific insights about what we do um through from experience from their own mistakes and their Mm -hmm. own learnings so we uh, and and we immediately sort of develop a shorthand 
Um, I think a lot of artists have that. I think, you know, especially artists who work in solitude, they, they like to talk to other artists about the craft, about what they're doing and their process. So that's often a big thing. Um, for the past four years, I've been the president of the National Cartoonist Society. And it's, I've learned so much more about the industry at large than I ever would have just as a, as a member. Um, but it is the thing that really, it's the thread throughout my whole career, that sort of spine that everything else kind of hung off that has made sure that I've updated my information and that I've stayed up to date with what's happening and, and how and why, and been able to have a network of friends. Um, I mean, I'm insanely lucky to call them friends because they're, you know, heroes, but they're also now friends, which is bizarre. Um, you know, to who I can ask, Hey, uh, I, what are you using? You know, what's, what ink are you using? But also are you using a, a Cintiq? Are you using a Wacom tablet? Are you right. scanning? What scanner are you using to get a high enough res scan for a book for this, for that, you know, um, all those little bits and pieces that everyone has a different answer for, but overall you kind of end up becoming a, you know, this sort of conduit to like it, it, information for other people. So, you know, things that I learn, I like to share because I think, well, I'd, I remember wanting to know that. So now I want to, I want to be able to kind of help other cartoonists who are wondering how the hell do I be a cartoonist and what it was to be a cartoonist when I was starting out back in, you know, 2003, four, mm -hmm. um, like I hand, I remember I handed in my resignation letter to my boss at the print shop back in 2004. So nearly 20 years ago. Um, and it, I, I, there are things now that I would tell freelancers or people, cartoonists who are just starting out that I, uh, would probably not have told my 20 years previous self. There are just things that have changed so much right. that I would not encourage someone to pursue a syndication deal for a newspaper. I would not encourage them to, um, you know, uh, learn digital tools first. I now encourage you learn to draw by hand and then you translate that skill onto a digital medium instead mm -hmm. of learning on digital where you have the, you know, the safety net of an undo button. Mm -hmm. Um, there are certain things that I've, I've realized over time are probably more useful, um, that I thought were really important back then that aren't as important. Like your, I don't know, just like things like hitting a deadline and being reliable and being consistent. Those, those three things, um, are more important, I think still than how good your work is compared to other people, um, at, at as far as the, the output. So. You might not be the greatest illustrator in the world. You may not be the best artist in your field, but if you're reliable and you're hitting deadlines and you're consistent and you're professional, that is worth so much to the people that you are working for. They're so used to artists flaking out on them or missing deadlines or lying about when they can deliver a thing or doing the classic freelancer thing of saying yes and then trying to figure out how to do the thing later. Um, yeah, I, I, any, any young cartoonist, if I was like talking to my previous self, when I was starting out, it, I just say, get your shit together, get, you know, set yourself up. If you need to make a business, you made it like a sole proprietor or an LLC, whatever it is, get your taxes sorted, get your business sorted, invoice, 
you know, um, pay your things on time, but also invoice and follow up with clients and, and, and be professional, you know, like show up for the work. Don't expect it to come to you. Right. And like be a, be a, an adult, you know, um, it's such a temptation for the artist to be capricious kind of, oh, I'm a, I'm a little, I'm a crazy, interesting artist and I have all of these, you know, um, eccentricities and yes, you can have that. That's fine. Um, and maybe that's why some artists need an agent as an intermediary because they just can't. You can't uh, put them in public settings. But that's a luxury that you have to know that <laughs> oh, that's yeah. a minority of people who have an agent. So you have to have your shit together. You have to be able to, you know, um, uh, advertise, I guess, and oh, network. Yeah. And I, I think of it as the, the business of being an artist. Like you have to get serious about this. You yeah. can't just be locked into this creative mindset of being the temperamental artist and people need to, you know, the idea that people need to understand me and I am yeah. already the thing I need to be, but everybody else is not getting it is a little <laughs> conceited and you need to, yeah. firstly, you need to uh, get off your high horse. And secondly, you really need to think about the business of being an artist, especially like, so how I put it is that in the internet and everything that's here now, it enables us to be independent artists somebody mm. from perth somebody from calcutta somebody from mm. uh, vancouver so there is this privilege we have but this privilege of not needing to be in the right clubs not needing to be in the right geographical proximities this yeah. privilege also comes with the responsibility that now we need to do those things that we would otherwise be quote unquote seeking representation for the yeah. idea of speaking like a person who is doing a job, the idea of making, you know, putting numbers to your work and yeah. invoicing and all of those mundane things, but also the challenging things like advertising and marketing yourself and being yeah. a bit of a brand. It's so important to do that because now you have the power to be successful in your lifetime if you really push yeah. for it. But yeah you have to do those things you can't if to ask for somebody else to do those things is to surrender all of the power that even made it possible for you to do it yeah no that's absolutely right and you know it's it's uh, the other the other piece to it is it because it sucks let's be honest the business side of being an artist <laughs> does suck it's it's not what you signed up for it's not the reason you became an artist but i'll tell you what it's the reason you'll stay an artist it's yeah. the reason you can still be an artist is because you had to figure out how to do that. And it takes a while. I mean, it took me a long time to really mm. realize the value of actually running yourself. You're, you are offering a service. Um, uh, you, you're treating yourself like a business. It, it, it sucks, but you got to do it. Uh, but in the same way, you know, when you, when you have staff in a company and say a new software comes up um, or you want them to, or a new version of something comes out, and you want them to sort of level up their skills, you send them on training courses, you, you know, you give them these, you know, training things and you make, you ask them to, to, to upskill. And the same goes for being an artist. And there's a book I read every year by Nick Meglin. He was the editor, editor at Mad Magazine. It's called Drawing From Within. It's a fantastic book, oh, Drawing right. From Within. And it's just a whole bunch of sketching exercises, a bunch of drawing and observation and development and upskilling on certain abilities you would love it oh my god it's right up your alley yeah i'm going to check this out. um you would really love it drawing from within um probably the most valuable book i've ever read on drawing 
Um, but there are other, like my studio is full of books about doing this thing we do because I want to just always learn more. I never want to stop and just be like, all right, this is my style now. Yeah. This is how I do it forever. I yeah. change my tools. I change my workflow. I update my, you know, my software that I use. I, you know, I, I have a hybrid work model where I do some by hand and some digitally, depending on the job. Um, you know, it's, I think it's important. You got to consistently be learning and have that kind of, I guess, a desire to learn, to, mm -hmm. to want to keep upskilling. And, mm -hmm. and I think that along with the business side of things, if you can find that balance, um, then you can have a good sort of chance of sustaining, not just having, but sustaining a career. Um, and if you need to ask, outsource something like bookkeeping or, you know, accounting or whatever it is, advertising, whatever, whatever thing that you hate so much that you just can't bring yourself to do it. So, all right, then see if you can make enough money to outsource it to someone else who does that thing. And, you know, just sort of have a hub and spoke model for your business where you're the central thing and you outsource, I don't know, invoicing or bookkeeping or marketing, whatever it is, you know, just, if you don't want to do it, see if you can make enough money to afford to outsource it to someone else. Oh yeah. And you know, uh, to be like, I mean, I hold this view very strongly and I tell people that you have to do this, but to be perfectly uh, respectful of this situation, it is also a very, it's like the last two decades since 2003 for you, since 2009 for me, when I started drawing comics and putting them on the internet, uh, things have changed so rapidly in this yeah. little over a decade. And like the rules have changed, the incentives have changed, the platforms have changed continuously. The platforms themselves have like maliciously evolved to uh, sort of just uh, like instead of being the the thing that runs the machine we are sort i feel like now content creators is how yeah. uh, everyone is labeled and all content creators regardless of your noble or ignoble intentions you are the fuel you are being burned in order to run this machine you're not a part <laughs> of the machine you're just this wow. thing that's fed into it and yeah this is also an evolving understanding because this is not how my understanding of facebook started in 2009 or 10, when I first got Facebook, Facebook was liberating because suddenly a hundred people can like my comic. That is just unreal to me. It's impossible yeah. before this and suddenly it's possible. And then, of course, you understand what it does to you. And all of this stuff that you're talking about, it's so relevant, like our need to keep updating ourselves, our need yeah. to constantly... Um, to stay true to what you are, even in the face of outside criticism or rejection. But these yeah. are all things that this ecosystem that all content must pass through, that is social media, that it discourages and it asks you to stop doing those things so that you become, you know, nice and acceptable fuel for the machine. And yeah. it's so tough to hold on to these ideas. So um, I guess... What I'm trying to get to, the the thing I'm trying to think about is also the importance of, you know, how you said, the importance of a group and how much that has helped me. Like, I knew that I wanted to learn to draw, but I'm a terrible student in the sense that I'm not, I don't pay attention and I just, my mind wanders and I do my own thing and I'm no good at following a given curriculum. So right. nothing seemed to be working for me. And I got all these how to draw books and YouTube channels and none of them worked for me. 
until mm. I joined an urban sketching group in Chicago at the time and later oh, cool. in Minneapolis and I suddenly understood that oh I can just learn if I watch what these guys are doing and I right. look over their shoulder to see how they negotiated this problem yeah. and I ask them which pen they are using rather than thinking I need to get the quote unquote best pen no such thing <laughs> exists yeah and suddenly my learning accelerated and my uh, my ideas got better and I was able to move forward because I was looking at something someone did and then trying to do it in my way or just trying to do it in my sketchbook and automatically it would become my way of doing things and this yeah. path of progress suddenly led to interesting results yeah that's so interesting uh, i the fact that you didn't just observe but you passed the question that the chasm between those two things of just watching versus actually going up and going hey what is that pen what are you mm -hmm. using or why did you decide to frame that image that way? Like, why yeah. did you put the trees on the edge? Why didn't you put them in the middle? You know, all those things like draftsmanship, all those little questions that you actually ask instead of just watching and trying to assume what their thought process was, it makes such a big difference. And people are usually very ready, usually ready to share their process and their insight and their thoughts. Yeah. And sometimes they're doing it merely to kind of convince themselves that they made the right decision because they're like <laughs> you know what yeah i did put the tree there on purpose you know? mm -hmm. <laughs> and and your ability to actually go to those sketch groups in the first place as well to to actually go you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna leave the house and i'm gonna go to one of these sketch groups and i saw the, the one you recently went to that looked so great um that just sort of going out and sketching uh, having other people around you doing that thing their own way mm -hmm. and learning from each other. It's like this self-sustaining sort of um, group of like everyone is immediately just by virtue of being in each other's presence, you're increasing your skill level exponentially just by yeah. sharing, you know, and that's such a great thing. That's such a, that's what I love about those groups, you know, finding mm -hmm. your people and hanging out with them. Like I grew up in a similar situation to how you describe Perth. Like there's a lot of art in my part of the world, but sure. the idea of comics and this kind of expression and becoming a cartoonist or becoming a writer, I did not have uh, models for it growing up. So I didn't know how, who to emulate or that, you know, there was no path in front of me that you can do this and then you do this and then you're successful. So yeah. a lot of it was figuring out. And this time in the early 2000s was also when the, well, social media didn't exist. And our, the idea of what we took from the internet was very different. And it seems yeah. almost so far removed now that you can't simply Google and get the answer for how do I become an independent artist? And there will be dozen articles written by a dozen successful cartoonists and independent artists all over the world. <laughs> giving you the yeah. best five tips like none of that stuff exists yet and you still have yeah, to right. figure it out by actually talking to somebody and getting that information and it's so difficult to find those communities yeah, and now with all this we, we're actually at the same place now almost 20 years later 
in the sense that we have all the information of the world that it's almost to the point of noise. And now we need somebody, again, we need a real person in hopefully a real place who yeah. will cut through the bullshit and give us really what matters. Really tell me something that's so relevant to me. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love that. That's, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, uh, <laughs> I, there, there was a cartoonist uh, that I used to know. He, he was a, a, he was very generous to me. He was a good friend, but unfortunately he's now passed away. His name was Pran Kumar. He did a comic strip, uh, uh, called, uh, Chacha Chowdhury. He went by Pran. That was his, yeah. And, um, he was also of a mind that he was very successful where he was. And he was aware that like, if for, in order for someone else to come up to be where he is or for him to, you know, send the elevator back down and <laughs> um, he'd have to move or die. <laughs> he'd, have uh -huh. to, he'd have to leave that space because it was such a, yeah, he was at such a level or such a place that, um, for someone else to get to that spot, it was such a limited bit of real estate that he would have to, you know, leave it. Um, and I look at things now like Substack and like, um, I guess, you know, like in some senses, I look at like other platforms where it feels like there's an infinite amount of space, but, um, there is like a, there's like, um, I guess if, you know, you, you're constantly having to change and evolve in the way that the platform is. So like when, so like, well, you know, when Substack says, Hey, we're doing notes and you're like, oh, well, okay we're doing this now and then oh we're doing re restacking we're doing you know we're 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 doing um you know we're doing uh threads and then we're, we're doing chat we're doing uh referrals all those things remind me of what an artist does when they like look at what other people are doing and go oh i could probably improve upon that mm -hmm. like i think it's up like itself even is is like this almost an avatar for an independent like a freelancer almost like to me substack was always like medium had a baby with patreon and mailchimp <laughs> <Yeah>. right <laughs> yeah. mailchimp patreon and medium had just mushed together and became this one sort of atomized thing they did all this stuff and all you had to do is create but also it was constantly having to upskill and learn and evolve and that's what being an artist is now to, 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 to work as an artist is to constantly have to evolve. And, and there is no pran spot anymore. There is no consensus top dog spot where it's like, well, this is the goal. This is where you get to. And I have to leave in order for you to get here. That doesn't exist anymore because everything's gone horizontally instead of. So yeah. that time has passed. I, I love that analogy, you know? Uh, so, um, I've visualized it some, uh, to something similar, like you can't go up, there's an infinite horizontal. Um, I'd like to think of like, so, you know, when Pran was doing the comics and even now to some extent, the a lot of the problem with being a cartoonist in India is that the comics culture is not very deep in many layers. Yeah. Right. So you you can't be a comic at a certain level and then upgrade to another level. And if you're not successful at that level, then come down to the level you are yeah. okay you know you can sort of sustain at so those layers don't exist just like how comedy and stand-up comedy has in cities like chicago and new york it has so many layers you can be at this club or you can be at the open mic night where anybody can go 
and you can right. just do uh, all these different layers of different leagues almost you could think of it as of professionalism and uh, popularity yeah. etc and when that doesn't exist when you're in an old world situation for lack of a better term you yeah. have like i think of it as a single pyramid you can be on top of it and everybody is trying to climb it and of course to get to the top you have to edge out somebody else and there is this yeah. sense of a zero sum game here yeah but right. what we have now is infinite pyramids so you don't have to get past a single gatekeeper for example a newspaper in order to mm -hmm. become a cartoonist yeah you right, can exactly. simply become a cartoonist and now you have your own audience and you have your own people and you have your own reach and you're sort yes. of building your own pyramid in a sense that that you are kind of always on top of but how high up you go is dependent on how you construct this thing it's not waiting for you to take like it's not another pyramid that you're simply entering and then trying to climb to the top of anymore yeah that that pyramid idea is kind of antiquated and i there is a guy called Paul Jarvis who uh, wrote a book oh. called Company of One. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, in, on Vancouver Island, in fact. I read that book is. last year. That's right, he is. Uh, one, of the, one of the pieces to that book, Company of One, was what is your enough? Mm -hmm. Like, you, you can have this sort of unmoderated, just growth and scaling at all costs, or, you know, you could otherwise just go, well, what does success even look like to me? Does it look like being at the top of that pyramid and being you know, the biggest, most successful, famous, whatever it is you do in the world? Or would you be happy spending your day-to-day -day if you could just have X amount for food and maybe a trip or two during the year and some savings, you know, for when you retire? And you, you just, you don't have to be a millionaire. You don't have to be Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. You can just have a, a, an enough in mind that stops you stressing about this constant hedonic adaptation of just getting to one part of a pyramid and then only looking up at the next part. You know, it's that whole thing of like behind mountains are more mountains. Yeah, you you'll never be, it'll never be enough. So having that uh, uh, goal of like, like, as you say, getting into a newspaper and getting syndicated or all those old ideas of, of hierarchy, they're just done. They're just kind yeah. of gone. And it happened... It happened very slowly, but then all at once. And I spent the last four years with the board of the NCS rewriting the bylaws of the National Cartoonist Society because the barriers to entry to become a member. I is, was just going to ask you about that because, yeah, uh, yeah, please go on. Well, we, we, we had to modify very dramatically, in fact, what it even is to be a professional working cartoonist mm -hmm. because previously you needed to sort of be syndicated or you needed to be regularly published in something like the New Yorker or Esquire or Playboy. You know, you had to have uh, a body of work over several decades sometimes, and you had to have two letters of recommendation from members in good standing. And, you know, look, this is an organization that wrote their bylaws in 1946. Okay, right, take it right. with a grain. But <laughs> we had to really sit down and go line by line with a parliamentarian to check that, A, the bylaws were up to code in the state of New York, where we were founded, but then also that they matched the industry we're actually trying to cater to right? Um, and, and the members working in them because being syndicated in a newspaper isn't really the checkmark of, you know, there of, of being a successful cartoonist. There are cartoonists who make so much more money 
than syndicated newspaper cartoonists now. And they're selling merch oh, yeah. through Instagram, through Patreon, through their social media channels. They're on, you know, and maybe some of them are published regularly on the Nib, which unfortunately is closing. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, they have different audiences. They've found their people. They're making a good living doing this one thing. It's not their side hustle. It's not a hobby. It's their full-time gig, but they still, by, you know, definition of the bylaws of what is a working cartoonist, still didn't qualify, which is maddening because it meant that we were missing out on so much talent in the ranks of the NDS. So, um, we've changed it. And now the committee, the membership committee of whom I still don't know by design as president, I don't know who's on the committee. Um, uh, they have a different set of metrics to govern what is and isn't a qualified sort of, you know, artist member working cartoonist because, um, yeah, those, those previous metrics simply weren't, um, relevant anymore. At, at one point they were saying you had to make a certain percentage of your income from cartooning. I'm like, how are you measuring that? Are you getting <laughs> bank statements and W2s? Like, what are you, what are you getting? Like, how do you measure that? Um, so yeah, those things have changed. Those hierarchical benchmark goal oriented, like this is what a cartoonist is or isn't. Those things are just kind of, I don't know. They just, they've changed. They've evolved. They've oh yeah. And even the idea of what is a cartoon has changed so much. Like even <laughs> like, like the idea of being syndicated implies that you're making a three or four panel or a single panel comic. And now yeah. you have people who defy all of those rules. Like, again, the platform dictates the, like the form, uh, like form follows also the, the kind of medium that it exists on. So as soon as Instagram became this thing where you do horizontal swiping through multiple right. images, people yeah. oriented to a horizontal style. But before that, when everybody was scrolling and people were on Tumblr, uh, comics became vertically oriented for people to be able to scroll. And that's how webtoons works. Yeah. Right. And so much is uh, like this freedom from the format or the layout stipulated by print media. It lead, led to so many people becoming cartoonists and artists in whole new different ways. I'm thinking even of one of uh, the cartoonists whose uh, print I have on my wall. He's from Australia, I think. Zen Pencils. Uh, that just you 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 touched on something that I think. You, you made me stop and, and realize something. Um, I, the, the vertical versus horizontal thing mm -hmm. has been pretty much at the base of every conversation I've had with every cartoonist I've spoken to for the last five, six years. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is before carousel posts. Mm -hmm. Um, I did a, an app called I Megzy, <laughs> which is really geeky name for it, but Megzy was the nickname for Ginger Megs. And oh, I, I putting I before everything back then of was course. like what everyone was doing. Yeah. And it was just vertical <laughs> comics. It was literally just scrolling through the strips. Right. So you'd, you'd be able to just read it on your phone. Right. And then Instagram started doing Then I mean, then Instagram really blew up as to become this ubiquitous platform. And I was like, I'm reinventing the wheel. I may as well just put them on Instagram. Right. And then they invented carousel, po they introduced carousel posts and that made it even better. Um, but the way that say my nephew, who is now 10. The way he interacts with comics, he loves comics. He loves mm -hmm. reading comics and cartoons. Mm -hmm. He loves comic strips, and comic books. He loves Spider-Man, you know, but, um, I, the way that he interacts with these things now and the way that he'll interact, uh, who knows how he'll interact with them in the future, but just watching him innately, uh, scroll to find content. He was doing that since he was like, 
a baby. I remember watching him have his mum's phone in his hand and know to scroll to, to read comics, uh, and, and like see things to see more things. Um, that's scroll like it being dictated by the platforms and what they decide is the, is the, the way it comes back to the, that museum wall thing mm-hmm. of like, well, this is the new, these are the new museum curators. Uh, exactly. and they're telling you, this is how your content should appear. Uh, whether it's webtoon or, you know, um, uh, I have a go, it's Instagram, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. it's telling you, it's telling you how to put your work onto that platform. Uh, and that's how that generation is going to absorb that work in the same way that you and I, you know, grew up reading comic strips in a newspaper. There's an entire generation who are growing up reading their comics on a phone and their relationship to it may be different. I'm not sure. It might be exactly the same, but it may be less intimate because there's something about a physical thing. Like, um, like when I read the collections, like the Calvin and Hobbes collections, the incredible Calvin Hobbes and all all those books that I had growing up, I, Mm -hmm. you know, tore through those books. They were fantastic, but there was a real physical connection that I had with seeing them on the page. I don't think I would have had that necessarily if I was scrolling through a bunch of Calvin and Hobbes strips yeah. on my phone. I'm just not yeah. sure. I, there's no way to know, really. I actually, you know, I think that's what it is. There's no way to know because I sometimes I feel this way very often. But yeah, uh, I I sometimes wonder if this is me being a product of my times. That because I have this nostalgia to this print experience from my yeah. childhood, right. that I think it's indispensable. But to somebody who's doing digital first, right from early adolescence, maybe the same bonds are formed with a digital interaction. I would never know because my bonds are already formed from physical interactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the digital, um, the Go Comics and Comics Kingdom, which are mm-hmm. the two big platforms for the syndicates, King right. Features and Andrews McMill Universal. Um, they have constantly been trying to solve this riddle of how to still maintain the artist's intent on how the content is consumed mm-hmm. versus how best it should be consumed on a phone. So instead of crushing comic strips down and reducing them as horizontal strips on a, on a portrait oriented screen, um, you know, that sometimes they try and, and do, they, they experiment. And I, I do know that they are constantly changing and updating their platforms to try new things and do things differently. But I, I do know that it's a huge challenge they face because they do not want to bastardize the, the, the artist's in, intent of how the work is to be. Absolutely. I and I guess like the bigger, to, kind of. yeah. And the bigger a platform gets, you know, you are always slower to move like you can't just take a decision overnight and it can't be a big decision that's right so pivoting is a lot more difficult and you're always trailing behind these trends and some of them might be short-lived trends and some of them might be real significant uh, departures from the previous yeah, but you exactly. and it's it's you have to adopt this conservative approach so Actually, this this brings us to uh, like I'm curious to know how the National Cartooning Society, uh, now then functions because one of my questions to you was going to be about how it you know who can get into it because there must be these barriers to entry and I was already thinking of uh, how you probably need to be syndicated or you need to be published x number of times in magazines in order to get into it. Right. So if you're adapting to this new world, 
you need to account for both sides of this situation you need to meet you need to get new people coming in but you yeah. also need to preserve the value for your institution so what is this what is this balance and how does a cartooning society stay any cartooning society let alone the national cartooning society uh, how does it stay relevant and useful it's not indistinct from the challenge that we talked about earlier with ginger megs because i have a genuine respect for a lot of the traditions and values of the organization um although there are some that are kind of antiquated and have kind of had their day um and some of those are in process some of those are in values some of them are sort of deeply entrenched um kind of ideas that need to be updated and you need to be able to modernize the thing and cater for the contemporary um members without bastardizing or disrespecting the loyalty and you know um the longtime members who have been there and 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 made the organization what it is for so long and it's a big challenge because sometimes you have to break some eggs and you you have to be willing to be the unpopular person to to make that decision to remove a thing that they've become so used to but mm. is no longer it's not feasible it's either not monetarily feasible or it's a barrier to entry that we just can't uphold anymore because it's irrelevant mm -hmm. and as you say it's and and I I know the New Yorker has done a similar thing where not the same but they they kind of had their own challenges and I when I used to go in every Tuesday to speak to the cartoon editor the new cartoon editor, when she came in, I know that her remit, what she was asked to do was really bring in some more cartoonists of different, um, backgrounds and, and, um, you know, genders and sexualities and races and everyone, we want to hear more voices, you know, because they yeah. previously kind of been shut out because traditionally the voices were pretty limited to a bunch of old white dudes. I mean, it um, was even physical submissions, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so to that end, I was always trading notes with her on how she was doing things. Mm -hmm. And, and because I was, you know, just coming in as president of the National Cartoonist Society at the time and having to once again, <laughs> steer an old steamship in the wind towards, you know, to, to, to stop it from sinking and, and, and becoming irrelevant. And it's really challenging because you have with the NCS 77 years of history. Um, and it's this one thread that has carried through all those generations of cartoonists who have lived and died and it has recorded their, you know, the people who won the awards in each of those years, the people who were working, what they did, how much they contributed to the industry, how much they changed the industry, um, how much they changed the society itself, the NCS. Mm -hmm. I, I always had a little, it's funny, every time I hear National Cartoonist Society, I always, <laughs> I always get, get a little twinge of like, eh, can we change it to something? But, you know, it's not my place to change it. Um, <laughs> uh, society just sounded a little, you know, but it was, it was a very exclusive and small group of people who had made it to the very, very top echelon of, of cartooning, where it's like the millionaire Connecticut comic strip cartoonists who were syndicated in every country in the world mm -hmm. and could, you know, had more money than they could ever spend in 10 lifetimes. Um, but then, you know, when in updating things, you don't want to dilute the prestige of being part of that organization, but you do need to open some doors to people who previously wouldn't qualify. 
right. because of the nature of what it is to be a cartoonist. Yeah. And I did post, there was a, um, on the National Cartoonist Society website, just nationalcartoonists.com. I posted after we finally, finally, after years and years, finally ratified the new bylaws, I posted um, just a note to, I guess, to the industry uh, in, at, at large, but mainly to the, to the membership, which um, I said was a new day for the National Cartoonist Society. And what I meant by that was that instead of kind of trying to calcify and maintain um, our existing way of doing things to the point of, you know, just kind of irrelevance, um, I thought what would be more exciting and, and, and interesting would be to see how we could, um, I guess how we could improve upon what we have. And I was really, I have to be honest with you. I was expecting a lot of pushback. I was mm -hmm. expecting to get buried alive by stalwarts of the organization who were like, you're ruining everything. What are you doing? Um, but I'm very, very relieved that I didn't get that much. I got, you know, you're always going to get a bunch, but I thought I was going to get you know, buried alive, but I wasn't, I, it was really nice, um, to get that, um, support for something that I think everyone felt was necessary and, and inevitable. They felt like, you know what, you need to do this. So, all right, let's, let's do it. And you, you know, if you need any help, let me know. Um, so in doing what was in many cases, an unpopular thing, it ended up forcing other people to kind of reevaluate their sort of, well, you know, we're going to, well, all right, we'll go along with this and see where it goes. We're willing to, for the sake of the sustaining of, of this organization, we'll, we'll, we'll help out. So, right. yeah, so it did end up, especially in the last four years when we had to pivot to digital very heavily and virtual events, we really, our hand was forced in some ways, um, but in other ways, it helped us to kind of understand, all right, what value do we even offer as an organization to members once they get here? Like it's, it's, it's all well and good to canvas for new cartoonists right. to join your organization. But once they land, like, what do they, what do they get? What are they even, what's the value prop? Why, why would they even be members anymore? There's nothing there for them. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, yeah, we also changed like, as well as the membership criteria, we changed what you get as a member, we changed, we added extra things that would actually be practical and interesting and valuable to the members so that it wasn't just a membership card that they got. It's an actual, a toolkit. It's a, it's right. a thing you can use at the tangible value that you have when you join. Yeah. And again, that took years to build that list of things of like, what did, what would people want? Like, mm -hmm. why would they even join? It's answering that question is complicated. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, Jason, let's take a short break here and uh, let's come back in five minutes to chatting. But before we sure. go into a break, uh, I want to ask you two short questions. Okay. So, firstly, uh, to become president, did you promise to make cartooning great again? <laughs> yeah, I, I found the opposite of whatever hat red was. It was a gr I got a green hat. You got a green hat. And I, and I yeah, promised to make cartooning great again, marker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Make and cartooning great again. MCGA. MCGA, yeah. So, uh, and my second question, uh, you, uh, I saw on your website that you were a Trivial Pursuit question. 
tell me the question. It, it's not as good as it sounds. It's uh, well, it, it was a trivial pursuit. I mean, it's pretty good. <laughs> it was a proud day, I have to say. My friend back in Australia, he was playing um, Trivial Pursuit with his friends. And uh, he thought he was going crazy because he was looking at it going, wait, this can't be my friend, Jason. This is insane. Uh-huh. And it was the question was, um, who is the cartoonist for the Australian comic strip Ginger Megs? And it was one of the pop culture uh, categories. And granted, it was the... Australasian version of Trivial Pursuit. So let's not get too carried away here. Um, yeah, so it was New Zealand and... I mean, it is, and, it is a legitimate part of the world, even though it's all the way down there. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of people, but it's not the... Some people, uh, to be fair. ...original Trivial But yeah, the, the question was, who was the cartoonist to Ginger Bag? And it had on the back, it had my name, and I was like, holy crap, I'm on a Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> God, that's insane. Amazing. <laughs> I grew up, and uh, when I was growing up, I used to think that the height of fame would be if I could get on this daily crossword one day. <laughs> That's still pretty big. That's yeah, pretty big. it is. It, it was the Times crossword, so that would be a really huge deal if it ever happened. But, yeah. Yeah, I can, I can imagine a board game is just as cool if I get to be... like th- There are thousands of people who are answering Jason Chatfield and looking and being so happy that it's correct. And then there are also thousands of people who think of someone else and then they're like, who is Jason Chatfield? Yeah, exactly. I expected to know some Jason guy's name. What kind of quiz is this? Uh, Yes, that is probably more people saying, who the hell is Jason Chatfield? Let's be honest. (laughs) Um, I, I should mention that, um, uh, we are recording, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Well, I should mention that, um, Mills Baker, uh, from, from Substack reached out, uh, on notes and had a question for both of us. And I oh, wonder sure. if. Let's uh, go into it. Okay. He said, for both of you, he said, I suppose how psychologically important inverted commas is drawing to you? Do you feel things when you don't do it enough? Does anything get pent up? Are there any weird consequences to learning to see the world so as to be able to express it? Like, does it make you different or subtle in big ways from say like verbal people like Mm -hmm. him or others? And he said also, (laughs) y'all both rule and I love seeing your work all the time. So thank (laughs) you. Thanks Mills. I'm curious. I want to know the same thing from you. I think we partly addressed this, right? When we were talking about the uselessness of words. Right. So uh, it's useful to also think about how drawing became relevant to my life. So in my life experience, it was all about the writing. And I started drawing comics in the last year of my bachelor's degree in engineering because I was just wasting time doing nothing. It was uh, my thesis and that took like two hours of the day and the rest of the day I was hanging out with friends and uh, just fooling around. So... Uh, drawing comics became a way for me to make fun of my friends and to get laughs and I always love doing that and share it on this new medium called Facebook where people love to like things and share things. So I started drawing in the last year of my bachelor's degree and these were just comics and stick figures because I didn't know how to draw any better. And I kept at it with my master's degree. I did my master's degree in mechanical engineering in the Netherlands. 
So I lived in this little cute town called Delft for wow. about five years. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it's it's a very idyllic part of the world. It was a very beautiful experience of my life. Delft is where the artist Vermeer is from. And I lived just a few blocks away from a very iconic, ordinary home that he painted. It's one of his more famous paintings. I was there for my master's degree. And through my master's degree, I kept trying to make comics. One thing I learned at that time, transitioning from a person who wrote humor so little scripts or little blog posts or uh, jokes or routines about uh, just being funny about things to drawing them out is that like literally a picture is worth a thousand words. You can hmm. say many things with a drawing that you sometimes can't with words yeah. or you would just need too many words to do it and then the point would be lost and you would lose attention mm -hmm. and you would lose the whole energy of the situation if you tried to explain it in words. You just have to show it to them. Yeah. So I think you relate to this also because you express ideas that come from the same place, but you express them across three different media. So there is a sense that sometimes you, certain ideas are only meant for certain mediums and they are not go better if they're put into words and drawing them can be the best way to, to share them. So right. this is one part of my larger answer. What do you think about this? I think you're, I mean, very similar. I'd probably be treading a lot of the same territory. Um, I remember someone saying that writing is a way of organizing your thought, uh, your thoughts or your brain. But I, for me, drawing is that for me, I work things out on the page. Um, and I journal, I definitely journal and have done every day for what since 2010. Uh, so, you know, 13 years of journaling, um, that's partly why I started Substack is I have all these crazy stories that I want to draw up. And to Mills's point, I do have them pent up. There are drawings inside of me that aren't out yet that feel like they're burning a hole in my chest. Right. Um, and I do feel like there's a, and again, part of it is probably perfectionism, but yeah, there's a, there's a thing of me like working them out as far as thoughts and ideas and stories that I need to put it out on paper and see it in order for me to know what it is and the shape of it and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. it's interesting hearing you say, you know, I think place is a big part of someone's art and their journey and their, their body of work. So you being in that same place that Vermeer was, uh, must have had an intrinsic influence on your just purely by virtue of being there just just had an influence on your ability to kind of interpret what you were seeing the light would be different the colors the shapes of things or the architecture the people the clothing everything that's such an interest and as an outsider that's such an interesting thing to bring to your work and for me when i moved to new york i found myself sitting in like bars and cafes uh people watching a lot um, just to try and absorb all the things that are so different than back home. You'd think they'd be the same because they're all English speaking countries and not at all. There's so many differences. And, um, to me, I, to work those out and kind of process them, I would draw them. I, I relate to that experience very much. Um, so the point at which I started drawing sneaky art, uh, was also the time where I very consciously moved away from drawing comics. Mm. So there was this phase when I realized I don't want to draw comics anymore. I made this 90 page, I mean, it was drawn over 90 pages, but it's digital. 
so digitally 90 page a web comic or graphic novel you could call it almost for mm-hmm. a news agency in india and this is about the rise of right wing politics in modern indian government and i made this whole story and i gave them all characters it was set in a game of thrones world and all the indian politicians of the last 100 years occupied spots that game of thrones characters do and this process took a lot out of me yes but so my journey away from comics started somehow with this grand thing that i made and then i put out into the world and we are just living in this time where you know as we were discussing before words mean different things to different people mm. and media and the way we consume media is not so much about they said this thing but mm-hmm. they said this thing in my space and yeah. how dare they if i don't I... like these words wow yeah so the the kind of reaction you get from people is not just about you saying something but you saying it to them because now it's come into their world when it comes on to their social media mm. and your right to say something disagreeable uh, something they don't appreciate something they politically do not align with that is questioned by them because again the phone is this intimate thing and i am in their world mm. and it's not just that i have the right to put my content on the internet it is their internet in this in this situation in a elaborate way what i was reaching at is that i got a lot of friction from people and when somebody is responding to a cartoonist that they don't like mm. they're not thinking of them as a full person they're no. just thinking of them as this thing in their life that needs to fuck off <laughs> and so i think i was just not thick skinned enough for it mm. and i wanted to do these things and this is around 2016 2017 so right, wow. donald trump had just become president Oof. and all my heroes had lost so mm. since i was watching political humor i'd been following john stewart yep. and stephen colbert and these guys were my heroes all i wanted to do was write a show like the colbert report and then in my understanding i saw them lose to the stupidest man in the world and all the political humor what what value did it have what strength does it have if it cannot even prevent this so obvious train wreck so i was really disillusioned i just felt like i thought this could change things and i thought words have power but these words are like if my heroes with their best words that i could possibly mm-hmm. ever hope to write right can't even stop this yeah. not even in such an obvious way yeah then what is the point of this am i just uh, stroking the egos of people who already agree with me is my yeah. job just to comfort people who already think the same things and then am i the same as somebody on the other side of the political spectrum making comics about you know pro discrimination or pro segregation and ideas like this because they are also catering to their audience and i'm actually just catering to my audience i'm not actually making a difference right so a lot of these ideas were running through my mind and i was an immigrant and sure. i felt very out of place yeah. in chicago as well as uh, wisconsin even more but chicago yeah. because i loved chicago immediately so i think a lot of your i read about your early new york experience and yeah a lot of that was chicago for me like i just instantly loved the city and i started to do stand up and i started to listen to stand up every night of the week so and cool. i started to write and walk the streets of chicago and with my firstly with my journal to write in but then with a sketchbook as i started to draw it and drawing 
started as a way to understand this world that I don't get. Like Americans, just the things that Americans do yeah. are so wild. Like for somebody coming from India to see, even somebody who's lived in Europe like I had, Americans are just this other thing. And I was just like, I was in the space where I was not enjoying putting my words out there. And I wanted to make sense of my world. And that's where drawing came into the picture for me. Right. And over time, what it has become is this understanding through Derrida and others that words are not really very good and not really very useful if you want to share something that is truly profound and mm. truly deep. You have to look outside of words because words need this, like you were saying, you know, you need this common reality. You need this common understanding. Yeah. They need to be vibing with your definition of those words. Like when right. I say we need democracy, what is it that I'm thinking of? And what is it that you think of? And then you might think, hey, we have too much democracy. We need less. <laughs> and then what do I think of you saying that we need less democracy? Because right. democracy to me means something else in my mind right now. So I didn't want to get into all of this these tangles. I wanted to share something that I thought everybody will instantly understand yeah. and nobody can disagree with because I'd, I want to share at the level where everybody is the same mm. and everything is the same reality. So my drawings are a way to, like you can see it in my art style, it's a way to filter away information yeah. and to get to the core of what is common for all of us? What is the human experience? So I think I did it for these reasons. And then the art taught me how unnecessary the words really were. <laughs> now I see this sort of dual identity I'm in. And recently I was framing it as the job of the artist being to render the writer irrelevant. Right. And that's what I try to do with every drawing. I try to make it so that you don't need the words anymore. Uh, I don't know if that answers the question, but how would you answer this question from Mills? Again, so much overlap that I don't want to tread on already, well, better articulated territory than I could ever put it into <laughs> words. Um, there, there were some interesting things that jumped out to me about your experience, um, particularly um, that it's a language, right? It's a, It's a... <sighs> so that you don't need the words is a big piece. For me, my favorite cartoonists growing up were pantomime cartoonists. Sergio Aragonas in Mad Magazine. He did the little marginalia, like the little comics in the margins, but also just, um, he were, he spoke Spanish. So he didn't, he didn't write captions or anything. The closest thing he wrote to captions were on a matter here. So he, he was a pantomime cartoonist. And my favorite New Yorker cartoons were captionless cartoons. Um, they always made me laugh the most. There is, I mean, on my walls in my studio, they, to this day, I don't know anything else that can make me laugh as much as cartoons I've already seen a million times, but something very deep, it hits something very deep in me. My value of what I find funny, what I find interesting and surprising. Um, I have the same, I, I guess as a kid, I was an introvert, so I used to carry around a little clipboard with some A4 paper in it and a Bic Biro, like a black clear barrel Bic everywhere I went for my whole childhood, even into my teens, I didn't talk. I was kind of a quiet kid, a chubby little quiet nerd who <laughs> liked reading comics and mad magazine. Um, and I, that was my outlet. That was my expression. I would draw things. That was my way of interpreting the world. And I had extrovert friends who I'd hang out with and they did a lot of the talking and that was great. And, um, 
I only got into comedy in my twenties when I noticed all my other friends were doing it and it was an outlet for them. And I was like, that seems like a great outlet because it's immediate, right? When you put a comic strip or a gag cartoon out, you never hear the laugh because you don't, you don't see, unless you're on the subway while someone's reading the New Yorker and they happen to flick to your cast, you don't hear the laugh at the other end. And to me, that's the metric. That's like the AB testing on whether something's funny or not. In a cartoon, you don't, you don't get to see that, but in standup, it's immediate it is, it is the quickest measure of whether something is good or not is if it's crickets or a laugh. And even if it's like a small laugh or a big laugh, like you have that metric, but you, but that's, again, that's an outlet for me that is, you would think it's an extroverted thing. It's actually not, um, because I've rehearsed those words a million times. I know how I'm going to say these things. It's a one-way monologue. It's not a conversation, really. Um, you can call it a conversation because it's the audience reacting to what you're saying, but it's it's an introvert's dream because they're going into a conversation that they know how it's going to go. They know what they're going to yeah. say, every word, every syllable. Yeah, and then they're going to leave. And they also have the they have the mandate to take that space and yes. to take that time. Precisely. Yeah, you have a set amount of time. You have a set amount of space that you're meant to be in. You're meant to be there. And then you get to leave the room. It's amazing. Um, and that's why crowd work, I have a lot of respect for crowd work comedians because I'm like, oh, that's, that's a lot. Um, so uh, drawing is, for me, was the, the longest time. It was my interpretation of, you know, my expression. Uh, I would get it out on the page and then not really say much in person. And then somewhere along the line, I mean, probably similar to you, um, I, I was very politically active, got into the weeds on politics at a level that was unhealthy. Um, I, cause I was, and this is early days of Twitter too. So I was on Twitter, like the year it came out. And then I was talking directly with politicians and journalists. This is back when Twitter was useful. Um, and it was like, it was, it felt like I was part of a conversation and it felt like an evolving, every day was like an evolving thing and an interesting. Back you know, when the politicians didn't know the consequences of speaking to a comedian just exactly, like that. They're exactly right. They didn't realize what that lack of. This uh, monster would become. <laughs> this whole Twitter thing, like this yeah. whole situation of like, right. I, yeah, like things just start with this sense of naivety and mm -hmm. like the innocent intentions, the best intentions. And then you have reality. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm conscious of, of time because I've only, I have to be, um, gone in 15, but I, I will say that I was very politically engaged. I was doing political cartoons every day for several papers. And I really had this sense that I was doing something, you know, I was part of the conversation. I was changing right. minds. <laughs> I thought I was changing minds and I would go on a show on a Sunday morning on TV on the ABC, which is like, uh, I guess, I don't know, CBS in Australia, in America. Um, and I would do this thing called Insiders. Uh, I've been on was... the ABC too. Oh, okay. That's amazing. On the radio though. Yeah, so that's, that's not nothing. That's amazing. No, it's, 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 it's something. National. I spoke to, spoke to Natasha Mitchell and that uh, was a great Natasha conversation. Mitchell. That's fantastic. I love that. Um, so yeah, the ABC, the national broadcaster, they have a TV show on Sunday morning for geeks like me who like politics. And this is back when politics was like a niche thing and everyone wasn't wearing it on their sleeve. Uh, and I would go over the weekend cartoons with the, um, uh, pictures editor, the photographs editor, um, at the Sydney morning Herald. And, um, yeah, we would talk about it and I felt like I was doing something and I did that for over a decade, did like 14 years. And then I, like you 
with like, I think I'm done with this conversation because I'm talking past people now and we're not speaking the same language. And I went out on the road in 2016 to do comedy uh, with a fellow comedian of mine. And I noticed all the Trump Pence signs in the yard and that nobody in New York knew what was coming. But if you left New York, you were like, oh, there's a tsunami coming in. The water's going out. You got to get ready. I receded into my artwork and started doing absurdist cartoons instead of topical. And I, it became less and less of the moment and more and more of just like, Hey, here's a silly picture of a guy taking a photo of the, his last meal in prison before he gets the electric chair. Like, I don't know, just two lead things that aren't, that are um, intrinsically sort of apolitical, but, uh, yeah, the online disinhibition effect definitely plays into a big part of why now for someone to engage with your art and hate it and let you know about it. And you aren't an artist. You're just a, you're like an avatar. You're like this, you're not all the things that they get to hate. Like yeah, just this thing that they attach all these labels to. I just posted a a, a cartoon in the chat here and it's uh, something I uh, have added to over many years. And it's all of the things that I am according to social media comments. It's just like both sides think I'm something. Like the left thinks I'm right, the right thinks I'm left, the center thinks I'm a nightmare, you know, because I don't, I don't have one specific codified label of what I believe everything to be. I, I jump all over the spectrum on various things and people hate that. They hate not being able to pin you down and put you in a box. How dare you? How dare you be a full person? Okay. So, uh, Jason, we have limited time. So I'm going to start to rush through some things that we would have otherwise given one hour each to. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we come back for these things later. Let's see how this episode goes. So because there are things that we have to talk about. So uh, one of the things, uh, another question that was that someone reached out about on Substack Notes was, Mm -hmm. do you know the difference between possums and opossums? Why is it that anytime anyone asks an Australian something, it's about either deadly animals or the difference between animals? I think that's that's what people think most of Australian life is. Like, uh, I remember when we were growing up in India, our idea of Australia was just determined by learning this stat about the population density. Yeah, right. <laughs> and Pretty just trying precise. to imagine what five people per square kilometer would feel like because... Five people are like in my square meter space usually in India. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to read out the differences to you. Do it. Okay. So possums, by the way, I don't know if you've seen a possum. Have you seen a possum in your life? Oh, yes. I mean, I, as much as I rail against it, everything you've ever heard about Australia is true. Everything there <laughs> can eat and kill you. Uh, they can't even release Jurassic Park in Australia. They'll just think it's the news. Uh, there's a... There's a they're, I mean, it's a very healthy nation of people because they spend most of their time running from shit. Uh, I've seen shit. many possums. In fact, I had one trapped inside of a roof, like a ceiling for a long mm. time that was haunting me and making noises and scratching. And uh, yeah, oh, believe me. It I've probably my... used its furry tail because that's what a possum has. While yes. the opossum has there a bare go. tail. Seamless. Look at that transition. Also, possums are native to Australia, New Zealand and China. And nowhere in the middle, 
And I wonder how they accomplished this. Did people specifically carry them to Australia from China? Maybe or the other way around? A ship. I want to say maybe a ship. I feel like involved. it could have been a ship or some yeah. kind of a, a floating thing on the water in general. Mm. But the idea that they don't exist anywhere in the middle is very curious to me. Yeah. And opossums live in North America yeah. and only in Southern Canada because uh, according to this website which I'm looking at, which looks very legitimate, the extreme cold of Northern Canada limits these marsupials from migrating much further. So furry tail, uh, bear tail, where they are found, where they are not found, Possums are smaller than opossums. Yes. I think the the fundamental idea of these differences, Jason, is that every time I tell you about opossums, you're supposed to say, oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know these facts. This is amazing. So I'll tell you the fact and then I want you to go, oh, possums. (laughs) All right. So possums are smaller than opossums. Uh, Possums can range from less than an ounce to over 20 pounds. But opossums... Indeed. Opossums have pointed white faces and coarse fur, whereas the possum that was trapped in your house probably had thick golden or brown coat. Opossum? It is very fascinating. Um, Possums have two forward teeth, and opossums belong to a separate order of people who have... What? They have two wombs. I don't think this is much of a difference. Like, I thought they would say something about the opossum's teeth. Oh, possums. Oh, possums. Two wombs. Who does this? You can get pregnant twice at oh the same God, time. Oh, my God, imagine. Yes. <laughs> Having separate pregnancies at the same time. Ooh, what a Separate fathers? Separate. Oh, this is this is oh. so complicated. Interesting. Oh, possums. Yeah. Oh, possums. They really get it on. <laughs> so there are many possum species, but only one opossum species. Even That's... though they have two wombs. This is interesting. This is insane. And don't get me started on drop bears. So, uh, possums, Mm -hmm. um, dum dum, they react very differently. Opossums and opossums react very differently to potential predators. Yes. So, what's interesting here is the idea of playing possum. Have you heard this phrase, playing possum? No. What is that? Yeah, you wouldn't have because it's not an Australian possum thing. Mm-hmm. It's a North American opossum thing. Mm-hmm. Why, why isn't so, it then playing opossum? Exactly right. I have mm-hmm. no idea. So it should be playing opossum because what uh, opossums do in the face of potential danger is they play dead. Huh. So they enter a comatose state and they play dead, which can last from two minutes to two hours. It's mm-hmm. apparently highly effective. Wow. Passing predators are like, I won't eat dead meat and they'll just walk past, I think. Huh. I, that's what I I'm do assuming. If, yeah, that's what I do if I see someone I don't want to talk to. You just fall over on the ground and play. Yeah, I, I yeah, think I that's that's a that's a good way to do things in public spaces. It can get a little complicated, but I feel like indoors it's all good. But the actual possum, the one in Australia, does not play possum. It instead plays friendly and shows no reservations in walking up to strangers. Unfortunately, this makes them an easy target for fur poaching. Well, uh, so these are the possum differences. Now you know. If somebody asks you if you know your possums from your opossums, now that you're in North America, I think you should uh, know a little bit more about the opossums. Well, I did fail that part of the citizenship test, I have to admit. Yeah. Maybe you can even think of your life as becoming from possum to opossum. (laughs) Sounds like a new substack. So from becoming incredibly friendly and showing no reservation in walking up to strangers... 
mm. now you enter a comatose state and play dead. I mean, that's an evolution of sorts, right? It 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 sort of is. I I think I think of it as growing up. Yeah. Growing <laughs> I out. I think the older I've gotten, the less eager I am to meet people and Yeah. Oh, um the final question, I guess, because we have very little time now. Sure. Tell me, is it better to be liked or is it better to be hated by Larry David? If that sucks. <laughs> what a great question. Uh, as you know, I'm an enormous fan of Larry and his work. Um, and to be insulted by him is to be blessed by the Pope. I mean, that is the ultimate. Uh, I mean, you don't, you don't want a, a compliment from Larry David because you know, you know what it is. It's not sincere. Exactly. He definitely doesn't mean that. Yeah. And, um, uh, I, yeah, I had to draw Larry for, uh, Katie Couric, who was doing a segment with him, uh, that w- they were shooting at, at Saadi's restaurant, which is like the Broadway, or, you know, the restaurant for Broadway performers while he was doing his show here. <clears throat> and, uh, the thing about Saadi's is, um, if you've ever been in there, you notice that the characters don't really look like the people they kind of drawn in this style. That's like, there's no life. <laughs> you can't really tell who they are. So I had to <clears throat> swallow my pride and. I did like five different versions, but I, I tried to make them look enough like him that you could kind of tell it's him, but, and, but I had to dumb down the likeness so that it didn't look good. Oh, really? It was tough to, to, I had to swallow my pride and my ego and just go, all right, this is what it is. And that was kind of the the brief. So I, yeah. Oh, I see. Oh, that's good to know because I didn't want to tell you. (laughs) I also, like I looked at it and I was like. This isn't a very good caricature, no, and no, Jason's a better it. artist than this. Yeah, I had to, I had to water the whole thing down. And they, honestly, we went through the art director just went through so many different versions that were like, yeah, it still looks too much like him. I was like, okay, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Not used to going the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, sorry to whoever does the caricatures, the Saudis. I'm sorry, but they don't look <laughs> like anything like the people. Oh, that's 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 good to know. Um, Tell me about fountain pens before we leave as oh, yes. we can close off with this. Yeah. Just uh, not only fountain pens, though, what are the different tools that you have used for drawing in different times of your life? And what has the recent journey with fountain pens been like? So I'm going to sizzle something here because I find myself talking about this more often than I care to admit. And it just falls out of me. It's the one thing I talk to other artists about more than anything else is tools and process. So I, I have a separate Substack, uh, called process junkie, process junkie.substack.com, uh, that I'm, that I'm slowly building. Uh, when I say slowly building, I've been writing about the posts ready to, to launch it, um, about just this thing, what pens I use, what process, what tools, the, uh, Wacom tablet, what brushes on Photoshop I'm using, what nib in the stylus right now I use a hunt 101 Imperial dip pen, uh, like a, a nib on a dip pen, uh, with Higgins ink waterproof. Uh, on paper and I found the exact right paper with the right amount of tooth that it gets a nice drag. Um, and I use a Wacom Cintiq 24, uh, touch and that's my digital like catch all. I do it. I do everything digital on that one machine. If I travel, I use a mobile studio pro <clears throat> when I'm on the road. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I have, I could, we could do an entire episode on fountain pens, but, uh. I went to the Fountain Pen Hospital down in Manhattan, and I'm going to do a Substack post about this on New York Cartoons. So I will, I will go into the the weeds on it. But um, yeah, I found two new, uh, like the pa- pa- Pilot Falcon, um, 
uh, just the, the, the nice extra fine soft, it's just so beautiful what it's, um, yeah. Uh, these, these are some of many tools that I, I use and love. All right. That's, that's great to know because, uh, I think we will, we should go into more details about fountain pens, maybe yeah. another time when you have more time, because sure. I want to really contrast this balance of drawing digitally versus drawing analog. Like mm -hmm. you mentioned early in this recording about how you tell people that they shouldn't be digital first. They should right. have analog skills. Correct. I completely agree with that. Like, I think I've gone back and forth. Digital really helped me at a phase in my life. Mm -hmm. And that was all iPad stuff with the uh, Apple Pencil. Right. And then for reasons, I switched to analog and then I never went back. <laughs> but uh, I have this, this, this topic is so relevant. Like I've spoken about it with several guests, including some who are animators with Netflix. Yeah. About yep. the importance of the analog tool in their life and how yep. it helps to contextualize and respect the digital uh, avatar of yes. the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's, uh, we could have an entire episode about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, let's, uh, I think we're at the, at the time that you need to exit. So let's, so. let's call it that, uh, next time. I think we should do a next time fountain pens yeah. and maybe more about Australian cricket. Like I, what I have niche. so many complaints, especially about the 2000s era. Like I didn't get to vent, but these guys like <laughs> Justin Langer. Oh, and, Langer. Uh, what's his Mark War and Mark all War of these people and are Steve. Steve Steve is kind of okay, but like McGraw, yep. Glenn McGraw, Glenn McGraw, yeah. And like we, and I have Moore. so many complaints. But mm -hmm. thank you, Jason. And uh, I know I'm not catching you in New York this time, but hopefully another time we'll get to go out and draw somewhere. Absolutely. All right. I look forward yeah. to it.